Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. I am Andrea. I live in Arizona. I am first and foremost a mother. I love being a mother. I never thought I would say that as a child. I always said I never wanted children. Um, But I think a lot of that has a lot to do with how I was raised. Um, So I think a lot of myself, my core points were formed at such a young age. Um, I grew up with a abusive father, um, very verbally and physically abusive um, to myself and to my mother, not so much my siblings. I was kind of the main one that he targeted. And then my mother was a very detached mother. Um, She did not, she spent a lot of her time on uh, electronics, TVs, computers. Um, And I think it was her way of coping with the circumstances that she was in. So um, I always said I didn't want kids. (laughs) Um, But Here I am. I am a mother of five. I'm really enjoying um, soaking up every moment with them and watching them learn and grow. And it's just been a full evolution to get where I am today. Um, But I would say starting with my husband and I got married and I was quite young. I had spent my entire um, probably, I think since I was 14 or 15 on hormonal birth control until I was um, 21, I was on hormonal birth control and I was encouraged by the provider to not have a period every month to go every three months and skip and then have my period. And so needless to say, I think I really screwed up a lot of my hormones in that time. Um, When we got married and we were discussing having children, uh, my husband is a little bit older than me. So I always felt the pressure. And I think I've been that way my whole life to get things going right away, to be a go-getter, to be an accomplisher, um, to always be perfect in things that I did. 
which stems a lot back to my childhood. And I think that's the only way I was able to garner affection or attachment from my mother was if I was an overachiever. So she saw me. And so that carried over into my relationship with him. And so I felt really felt the need to move forward and have children right away and kind of get our family going. And I think pushed him into doing that sooner um, than we both were ready for at the time. So we were trying to conceive for over a year and there was no success. And I had a really rough time when I stopped taking the birth control. It was extremely painful. It was some of the worst pains. It wasn't even cramps. It was excruciating um, pains. And we went and saw a fertility doctor, but I knew it just didn't feel right in the appointment. Um, when they discussed all the medication they wanted to put me on. And I just kept feeling how wrong it was internally inside. Because I'm like, I've worked so hard to get off of this birth control. And then you want to put me back on all these drugs to conceive. And so I just thought, no, this isn't for me. Um, And I was working for the state of Arizona as a um, case manager for disabled children in foster care. So I managed everything about their case from their finances to their home living to their potential adoptive placements, going to court with them or for them, um, and advocating for what they needed in regards to therapy or lifelong care. Um, And at that time... DCS peaked our in-care caseload to 19,000 kids. So I'm like, well, maybe I'm supposed to do this instead. Maybe I'm supposed to foster because of how many children are currently in care. And so we started that process to become licensed in the state of Arizona to have children placed in our care, um, which was a lot against, I think, my husband's core on what he felt was okay. My husband is a very private person, um, and so you have to divulge every being of your life when you do that. Um, He had a prior marriage, so all of that had to be put on the table, and um, they want all records if you have any biological children, and my husband had a biological son from his first marriage, and so they want backgrounds, and and rightfully so, I understand why they ask, Um, but my husband, being who he is, and he's just very private, so that was a strenuous time because I so passionately was, you know, diving into this is what I think we're supposed to do without consulting him and his feelings on it. And if it was something he wanted to do, 
And I think it took a while for me to circle back and see that it took growth on my end. Um, but of course he, he was on board in the sense of, I think more so making me happy and growing our family. So my husband's along for the ride, which resurfaces later in our marriage, right? There's some resentment that builds there because of my tunnel vision in pushing him into my timeline. Um, and I, it's not that I, I ever, ever think that he didn't want the children that we adopted or he didn't want to have a family. It was just my timeline was much faster than his timeline. And so by pushing him into it caused some turmoil and resentment in our marriage that we later work through, but I was so tunnel vision and I couldn't, I couldn't see any of that till the birth of our first child together. Um, but when we navigated foster care together, we had quite a few children placed in our care and um, they're not your biological children. And so there's not a, immediate attachment or connection. Those are built in time through providing regular care for the child. Some of the kids we bonded to faster than others. Some children he bonded to and I didn't bond to and vice versa. Um, We were placed with my son first um, and He was 15 months old at the time. He was actually born with craniosynostosis, which his skull was fused at birth. And because in the system, they require biological parents to consent to surgery and the judges to sign off for anything involving anesthesia, his surgery was in fact delayed. When you delay a craniosynostosis baby, and he was extremely severe with craniosynostosis, so much so where his skull was growing into a point because the brain had nowhere to expand and it was protruding through his forehead. Um, When a craniosynostosis surgery is delayed, all development is delayed for that child because of the amount of pressure on the brain. So he got his first surgery at uh, six months old, and ideally the specialists say it should have been done at four months old. He was not with me at the time. He was actually removed and had two homes prior to coming to live with us. So now where I am today, I think, wow, that's a lot of compounded trauma to be removed from the person who gestated you. And that's all you knew to be put into his first home was the mother's friend to be put into a trailer park on the Salt River Reservation, there were, I think, eight or nine people living in a one-bedroom trailer um, where he became very ill with RSV due to the conditions. To be removed from there, 
then deplaced into another foster home where he resided from one month to 15 months, then to be moved to me. His world was turned upside down multiple times with no care or concern for him. Um, just checking off boxes in the system. And so he went through his first surgery with another placement and he was extremely delayed at 15 months when he came to me. Um, and so we navigated that with the delays, the state mandates, the care, um, mandates what you need to do in order to follow the recommendations from what specialists and you have to report everything to them. So after every appointment, I would have to send an email and the recommendations would come back for this therapy or that therapy. And um, that's what we did. We chased, we, we chased all of these appointments down for the first three years of his life. The state delayed his adoption for a long long time in hopes that his biological mother would get things together. She in fact did not. Um, and I really struggle. I had to spend a lot of time with his biological mother in order. I, I wanted her to be successful. So she was invited to every doctor's appointment. Would she always go? No. Would she always go to his therapy? No. And I don't know her exact circumstances or situation that wasn't for me to judge. But I think it built a lot of resentment towards her because I love this child so much. And I couldn't wrap my head around why she wouldn't be there. Coming full circle to where I am today. You know, mental mentally she probably wasn't capable at the time to show up because of things going on in her life a lot of pending legal charges and things like that while I was caring for my son I was placed with my daughter she is they're both 14 months apart she was placed with me at five months old they called me one of my friends called me at work and said, I have a baby that I'm pulling from the foster home because they won't take her to her feeding therapy and she's dropping a lot of weight. Will you, do you have a bed? Can you take her? And just to kind of come full circle on where I was, now I would definitely ask my husband, but then I just said, yes, of course, um, and disregarded, you know, his input on the matter. So we signed up to take this baby, and they brought her over. She was five months old, and she couldn't lift her head. She, when I collected all of the birth records, she was a 10-pound baby at birth, and she was brought to me at eight pounds at five months old. So she hadn't gained, she's, she's lost weight. 
Um, she could not suckle from a bottle. And so it was kind of like a big shock, a trying time. I had this baby that all the specialists wanted to put a G-tube in. And my core said, no, she will eat when she, when she trusts. She'll eat. And so we had a GI doctor and I said, she's going to eat. I know she's going to eat. Give me some time. And he said, I need to do a weight check in a week. If you come back and she hasn't gained any weight or she's lost more weight, we're, we're putting a G-tube in. She's uh, malnourished. She was diagnosed, in their terms, failure to thrive. So um, that's pretty much all I did around the clock. I put her in a daycare <clears throat> next to my work at the time. And so I would leave my work every two hours and drive to the daycare to feed her because she wouldn't eat for any daycare provider. Well, yeah, provider. I was going to say you are fostering these children, but you have a different job also. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm working full time. I have um, about 40 kids on my caseload that I am managing their life, their placement, their court. And I'm keeping up on two of my other personal kids, court and appointments. Wow. So I'm dry. I'm leaving work. And I, I had a very understanding, compassionate boss at the time. And so I would use my brakes and I would drive over to the daycare and I would have to attempt to feed her and she would take very little and it got better, it got better and got better. So she ended up, she did gain weight. We were able to avoid the G tube and she slowly began to gain weight. Um, now you would see her and you would never know that this was something that she struggled with, but you know, she carries that emotional trauma with her today. And I think a lot of that is missed by many people while on paper, she is capable and strong and she's not malnourished anymore. If we walk by a snack table, she's going to shove food in her pocket. Not because she wants to steal or it's wrong. But I truly believe from the starvation being ingrained in her as an infant. And she has no idea why she does it. She doesn't know why she takes snacks or why a kid will leave a snack out on the school table and she'll put it in her bag. She has the kindest heart, but at her core, she has that feeling of survival. Am I going to run out of food? Um, so then there was that resentment I carried around for her first placement, thinking, how in the world could you let it get so bad that the state had to step in and take her out of your home because of how much weight she was losing. Um, because those, the case managers are pretty hands-off in the sense of you have so many kids, we're only seeing them once a month. So for them to even notice there's an issue, it takes a long time. Um, 
sometimes the case managers don't even show up once a month, even though that is bare minimum. So then we, I have both of the children and my daughter's case went to severance is what they call it, where the parents aren't doing what they're supposed to do, the biological parents. And who am I to judge not doing what they're supposed to do? It's what's outlined from the court. So my daughter had her hearing and this was out of a different county. My daughter was removed from a different county than Maricopa. And so I was on the phone for that hearing instead of in person. Her biological parents did not show up to that hearing to lose their rights. Um, Both of them were struggling with drug addictions, and my daughter was born severely addicted to methamphetamine. So I remember calling into the meeting, and the judge goes through her intro where she begins to terminate their rights. And I, my ego told me how exciting this was. And I was going to be so excited and overwhelmed with joy to hear that their rights were terminated and I could, we could move forward with the adoption with her. But I remember calling in and I felt completely opposite. I felt an immense wave of sadness roll over me. And I felt so sad for her that the woman that gave birth to her didn't show up, wasn't there. And her right to ever see that woman again legally was taken away from her. My daughter had no say. She had no say in the matter. And who's to say that was best for her? Um, And I was just so sad, sad for my daughter, sad for her biological mother. And I thought, wow, this is completely opposite as to what I ever thought I would feel. Um, And, you know, they try to look for any biological family members or other people to step in before they adopt to somebody who's outside the system or a licensed provider. They get kind of last pick and they couldn't locate any family members. Um, They couldn't locate anyone who was approved to take her. And so I remember her DCS worker at the time, who I knew on a friendly basis, was like, wow, you know, sent me a text. Are you so excited? Now now you're going to the adoption unit. You know, she gets to be yours. And I thought, of course, you know, I'm excited to put this behind us and be able to adopt her and have her be mine. But the grief... The grief that comes with that is, who, who am I to decide that I am more fit than her mother, than the person who gestated her? So um, we moved forward with her adoption, and we still hadn't heard from the mother at this time, the biological mother. Um, so she was in the wind, and um, at the same time, my son's case was dragging on. 
So he was placed with me first, but he ended up getting adopted last. And for his case, uh, my daughter's was very quick. She was removed at birth and adopted on her one-year birthday. So it moved extremely quickly for a in-the-system case. But a lot of it had to do with her being out of a different county. The county she was removed from was less tolerant of parents who aren't following the recommended plan. Um, My son was removed, and the county he was removed in gives lots of chances. So my son's case drag on and he was three and there each children child in care is assigned a guardian at litem who is in place to advocate for what's in the best interest of the child, not connected to what the state wants for the child. For my son, the state continued to push reunification with the biological mother, but she was facing many felonies looking at prison time. And she wasn't attending any of his medical appointments. And so the concern was, what care can she provide for him long term if she's unable to be aware of his diagnoses with the craniosynostosis and what lifelong he needs for follow-up? Because he is slated to have another surgery to correct his skull growth. It was projected to be at six, but um, it has since moved to seven or eight. How old is he right now? He is going to be eight next month, which is interesting because he self-advocates and he doesn't want the surgery. So, um, you know, that's really interesting. And when now that he's adopted, it doesn't matter what anyone says, but me or him or you know, we get to make that call ourselves. So that's very liberating to not have somebody telling you an outside party who doesn't know your child. This is what yeah, you Do you want to do. talk about the vaccine issue with foster children? Yeah. So when you have a child in foster care, you have to follow this recommended CDC schedule for immunizations which at that time was didn't resonate with me at all. Um, I ended up finding a doctor who didn't outright say we could skip or delay or anything to the schedule, but I brought up concerns about how my children were always sick. You know, one of them was still recovering from the feeding issues and the GI issues from being failure to thrive. And then my son was dealing with the developmental delays and he had actually really bad asthma when he was placed with me. I think a lot to do with the breathing environment he was breathing in, in one of the placements, his asthma was really bad. He got RSV every winter. And so I exercised concern on we're giving them these vaccines and they're so unhealthy. They're sick all the time. And so she agreed with me that it would never be good to vaccinate a sick child. And so as long as the children were sick during the recommended appointment that DCS has for them, which you have to do every well visit, that she would not recommend to 
vaccinate them because it is up to the care provider to send in a report if um, a foster parent says they're not vaccinating essentially you get turned in so she agreed with me um so thankful for that because we were able to forego um, almost all of the schedule. They did get what they had up until they came to me. So from zero to 15 months, my son had all of those and my daughter had from zero to five months. Um, if you are fostering and you have biological children in the home, your biological children are governed on which vaccines they need to have. They need to be up to date on the CDC schedule and it needs to be turned into the agency that you are fostering with. And the state tracks your own biological children's medical records to ensure that they are up to date. So thankfully for me, I didn't have any children that were impacted by this. And I think that's why my story played out the way it did, because I wouldn't have my children, my two oldest, if I had given birth first. Yeah, and you're a different um, person now. So if you had biological children and then chose to foster adopt, you don't know if you could have – I mean, you found a, you found a unicorn doctor. That's a huge piece of the story. I did. I did. And I think that it aligned the way it did because I truly believe my daughter has a really hard time processing um, anything pharmaceutical. She ended up shattering her elbow at um, two years old and had to go under anesthesia to repair her elbow from when she fell. And she had such a hard time recovering and detoxing even the anesthesia from her system. And I truly believe that my daughter would have been severely neurologically impacted if the schedule would have been followed. And I think that was her coming to me and living with us um, was the universe's way of protecting her was, you know, God's way of protecting her because she has such a hard time processing any pharmaceutical things in her body. Um, and I mean, you wouldn't, if you saw either of my kids now, you would never know that that is their story or that is, or they harbor these traumas, but um, parenting them, I see them. I see them every day and we constantly work through them. But I, I think it's hard, right? Who am I to decide who is a fit caregiver for them or who is the state to decide who is a fit caregiver? I have a for question. Them? You tried to conceive for a year and nothing happened. And then you're fostering these kids and you see meth addicts get pregnant. And you see, as, as a caseworker, you see all of this. How at that time, and even now, what what are your thoughts? What are the questions to God that were in your mind? I think at the time I had I had so much resentment. I mean, my son was baby number 
five for his biological mother, and she had none in her care. And my daughter was baby number four. Um, At the time, we also had other kids that didn't stay with us, but I had one baby who was baby number nine, and mom had none in her care. And so you just can't, I think it's like so mind-blowing, you can't wrap your head around it, because for me, giving birth to my first baby was so monumental and changed and rocked my whole world. I couldn't figure out how this change wasn't sparked for all of these women. And part of me has some compassion for them. Specifically, um, I've actually come back into contact with my daughter's biological mother, who has a really horrible upbringing and story. Um, She's clean now. She has kept the last baby. She was accepted into a mother and child rehab facility. And so she has him full full time. She is the mother. And the state did not intervene because she was able to get off methamphetamines. But there's also that sadness on how come she could do it for that baby, but she couldn't do it for my daughter. And so... Now I approach, I try to approach it with a lot of compassion to know that their wounds are so deep that they turn their back on who needed them the most for their own selfish reasons to continue to cope with their everyday life. Um, But it was really hard when my husband and I were trying to conceive and all of these women were pregnant all the time and didn't realize what a beautiful gift it was to be pregnant. It was so painful to see the mothers continue to show up at court and one came out and within a few months they were pregnant again. And so I think it just goes to show that you it's truly out of your control. Yeah, we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. I have one theory on it because I it boggles my mind and my my mind just like short circuits when I think about it because it's so hard to understand. And the only thing I can wrap my head around is God sends these souls to these people to say, here's an opportunity for you. Here's an opportunity to wake up to choose healing and not pain. And they have that free will and choice. And oh, it's just these children suffer when the parent doesn't choose the path of healing, you know, instead of the path of pain or addiction or trauma to continue the cycle. And that's free will. But it's just, it's just, just really hard to cope with understanding. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you meet a lot of people that are going through the process for their own selfish reasons um, who become a foster parent in order to have children because they can't conceive or a lot of same-sex couples become foster parents because their ultimate goal is adoption. And I don't think 
at my core, that was my investment into it. Um, when me and my husband discussed doing it, it wasn't to adopt right away. It was to help to, I wanted to mother at that time, whether the kid was with me for a season or a lifetime. Um, but I truly invested in trying to make a relationship so that the child could return home. And there are kids I had whose parents were successful and the kids did go home and the parents are still in contact with me or I get to see the kid grow up with their biological parents, which is also a beautiful thing too, to know that they, they're with their parents, their biological parents, and how wonderful is that. But for my kids, that was not their story. And so... Boy, living in fight or flight, though, through the up and downs of their court cases and every single time you enter that courtroom, you don't know if the, your kid is leaving that day or, and you'll never see them again or you're moving towards adoption. I mean, it's so... You have no power. Painful. You have no power. You are, when you decide to be a foster parent, you are a glorified babysitter for the state that you are signed up with. And all they do is pay you a minimal reimbursement to care for the child. And you do and say what they want you to do and say. And you don't speak out of line. And it's a very... Um, terrible system in itself but to be so invested in it and powerless it really strikes your core um while we were doing that I got pregnant I got pregnant with my husband and I's first child together and that was so exciting for us because I truly believe that all along, that's how my husband wanted to grow our family. I don't think he would have entered into the system or dealt with any of that if it wasn't for me pushing it. And he and he loves our children that we adopted. Um, but once I got pregnant, it was kind of like, okay, this is our window out. Once you have the baby, we know we're not going to vaccinate it. So we moved forward with the adoption of my son. And as soon as he was adopted, we closed our license um, because the unsettling feeling of, wow, the state is going to be invested in my own child was too much to stomach. So we knew that's when it was coming to an end. Um, so I ended up giving birth to Actually, I was still working full time. At 23 weeks pregnant, I was feeling sick at work. And I was fully participating in the system for the pregnancy with a standard OB. And I wanted a home birth. And it was on my mind as of something I wanted. But I think I had so many outside input 
and I was not confident in myself or my mothering or in touch with my body, that it was just more so that I was, you know, crazy or, you know, who was I to want this experience? So I went to a standard OB for care, but I was adamant on no vaccines. I was going to have a natural birth in the hospital, um, no epidural, no IV. And I was very outspoken of that. The OB that I went with was actually on board, fine, didn't mind respecting any of my choices. Um, Like I never had a cervical check the entire time I was pregnant in the office um, because it wasn't something I wanted. And she respected that. Um, But I I think because I was so in bed with the system for the adoption and the foster care, it spilled over to my pregnancy. Things that I knew, I knew going into the hospital to give birth was going to be a battle or felt like I was going to go be going to war to advocate for what I wanted for my daughter's birth. But it now it would be it would be a deal breaker because it would be such a big deal to me. It would it would rock me to my core. But at the time, I had been so intertwined with so many other people's opinions and listening to all these outside authorities. All of those walls were broken down. So we, I was like, well. At 23 weeks when I got um, sick at work, I decided to drive into the hospital to get checked out just to, I didn't feel well and I knew something was wrong. Mind you, I am under the stress of my son's case this entire time of wondering if we're going to adopt or have him taken away. And I was very bonded to my son. From the beginning, I went in and they had determined that my waters had ruptured at 23 weeks after they did their their test. And I remember the doctor coming in and she said to me, you're going to a hospital with a level three NICU. You're going to go by car or helicopter however we can get you there faster and when you get there you're going to deliver your 23 week old baby and the NICU team will meet you when you get there to discuss the likelihood of viability if your daughter if she, she was 23 weeks and four days if your daughter was 24 weeks gestation her chances of survival would be much higher but you're not there yet. And we don't think you, you can maintain the pregnancy till you're 24 weeks. I, my white cell count was elevated. So I had some kind of infection that they believed was linked to the waters rupturing. So within a few minutes, I was loaded onto a helicopter. I had called my husband and, um, to meet me at the hospital that was receiving me. And I remember being loaded into the helicopter and they say, you're tachycardic. Are you okay? And I said, no, they just told me my baby was going to die. What, what do you expect? Of course I'm tachycardic. Oh my gosh. So I get to the, 
hospital after riding in the helicopter from Chandler to um, Phoenix. And I'm loaded off, and my husband, because of his job, was able to badge through. So he was actually waiting on the helicopter pad for me, which is not typical. Normally, they put you in the room. And so my husband, I seen him waiting when the helicopter was landing. And I thought, oh, you know, it was like a sigh of relief to see him there. And I said to my husband, um, I don't care what infection or what's wrong. If you have a choice, you need to save the baby. And my husband um, nodded, but didn't respond verbally. So they paged the OB on call who came in. And he said, I'm going to try an antibiotic to stop the infection. They had already tried two at the previous hospital, and they said my body wasn't responding to them, and my waters were so low. On the ultrasound, you could see my daughter's face, and her lips were into the only pocket of fluid to breathe. And um, he said... The NICU team came in basically explaining the likelihood of viability if they, if my daughter was C-sectioned out now. And it this wasn't good. This is so interesting, though, so, that they're talking about a matter of three days. Your baby was 23 mm-hmm. weeks and six or four days. And four 24 days. weeks mm-hmm. is their cutoff. Mm-hmm. But they have no idea yes. when you conceived. <laughs> like... No, they have no idea when, and, and at the time, you know, for my other two pregnancies after I knew the day of conception, but for her, I didn't know it was. But how crazy is that, that they're talking about all of this chances of survival or death and based on calculations that could completely be false. Mm -hmm. Wild. Yeah. And they were trying to do fetal monitoring. And of course, you know, they're having a hard time because she's only 23 weeks. So getting the monitor on and the doctor hooked up and they were pumping me with um, the the magnesium, which was causing me to, you know, be dizzy and not be able to see. And they're like, well, we need to strengthen her lungs. And get her ready in case she has to come out. And um, then they wait, ended up waiting that night. And they took me to a hospital in a really bad town, a, feed, a part of town. And I remember the nurses saying, like, you know, we we're just so shocked that a mother – that cares so much about her baby, you know, normally we see a lot of drugs that cause these complications and, you know, without your consent, they run all the drug screenings. So my, all my drug screenings were clear and they couldn't believe it. And, but I was having this, these complications. So, um, now circling back, I truly believe that the amount of stress I was under cause my waters 
to be a slow leak. Um, they did not C-section her out. My white cells came down. They wanted me to stay in the hospital until I delivered. And I said, no, um, my husband is not capable. My husband had a very demanding job on the, at the time where he was on call almost daily. And I had these small children with all these medical needs. I said, I have to go home. I have to be at home. So they said, you have to drink two gallons of water a day and you have to sit in a tub of water for 30 minutes in order to maintain your fluid levels to maintain your pregnancy. Did they say anything about electrolytes, minerals, just water? Just water. So I'm like, done. You know, you tell the perfectionism in me, the outperformer, I'm like, done. You tell me I need to do something, I can do it. Send me home. So I ended up going home, drinking two gallons a day, sitting in a tub for 30 minutes, couldn't lift, followed all the recommendations. Um, I, and I so passionately wish women would try to slow down and relax when they have their waters ruptured because I see so many women who end up having the C-section to have their baby out, but my water's resealed. So when I slowed down and rested, my water's resealed and I was able to gestate full term. So I ended up giving, and they gave me all these because you didn't have enough fluid in there for so long. Your daughter's going to have, you know, all these abnormalities or need therapies because her skull's going to be a deformed and no, she was perfect. So that was a whirlwind and we went, so we went in for her birth and I knew it was going to be like, you know, I wanted all of these things. And I was so confident with my husband, you know, that he was going to be there advocating. And so it was kind of like a weird bonding experience between the two of us that we were both advocating and on board with what we wanted for this child. And we both wanted the same thing. And so when I gave birth to her, it was um, very eye-opening in the sense of everything came full circle. My husband was very important to me on the same playing field. I was able to reflect on how I wasn't treating him the way he should be treated in the beginning of our marriage. Um, I was able to come full circle and apologize to him for disregarding his desires. But that evolution didn't happen until I had her and realized how fundamentally important he was in her life and mine. And so over, you know, those two years, we did a lot of healing and circled back. And he said to me, when we've done therapy, that when I told him that to save the baby, that was really shattering for him because he wouldn't have. Um, he said, uh, if I would have had a choice, I wouldn't have saved the baby over you because I couldn't have done it without you. I couldn't have cared for all these small children because between my 
adopted son, my adopted daughter, and then the daughter I gave birth to, they're all three 14 months apart. And he says he couldn't have done it. Yeah. So that created a lot of repair between us. And so for my next daughter, um, we consciously, you know, conceived her. It was something we both desired and wanted and called in her pregnancy. And I knew, I felt it was a second chance to get everything I wanted, to have her at home, to have my other kids. Not that they were going, I'd never felt that I wanted them to witness the birth or be in the room, but that they were included in the sense of they get to wake up and their siblings there and their moms there and more so of a family, you know, a family life event. And so I sought out a, and when I gave birth to my daughter, I did not go back to work. So we went from a dual income household to a single income household. We had built a house and moved into that house, which comes to turn kind of plays into my decision on midwifery care. I compiled a list and kind of interviewed different midwives. And there were some that I really resonated with and some that I did not. Our insurance contracted with one midwife. And I thought, well, I did this in a hospital, even though it wasn't fully what I wanted. And I was able, you know, we were able to advocate for our daughter what what we thought was important at the time in the medical system. Of course, there was still, I gave up stuff that I would never give up today. Like, you know, she was rubbed and toweled off and weighed and all of these things that never, I would never allow to happen if I gave birth today. But the core, the no immunizations and the no eye ointment, was respected so I thought well I'll hire this midwife and because she takes our insurance it won't be a financial strain on our family with all these other small children and you were only being the only provider so we went forward with the midwife that was not my first choice but financially worked and my husband told me it's not a big deal, you know, hire who you want. And so I was like, no, no, this is who we'll use. And um, there were many times where I felt I was going against my core when I would meet with her. Um, This was during COVID. So my first appointment with her she was running in out of her house at the time, her midwifery clinic. She made us have the appointment in the backyard because she was t- so terrified that she would get COVID, which went against my beliefs. <laughs> and I, then she, um, when she greeted us, she gave us a cloth mask that she had made to wear. 
And so there were many warning signs like this is not, this is just not who you should use. So flash forward to her birth. Um, I was, I had envisioned this beautiful birth like I had for my daughter in the sense of uniting me and my husband and us being on the same page and us being a united front in order to bring our baby into the world. And we, I've since circled back with my husband and I think because it was in our home, he didn't feel the same need to protect as he did in the hospital. But I was very clear, no cervical checks. Um, And I was in the birthing tub when she arrived. And I remember sitting there and, and she came in. And the first thing she did after she put her stuff down was say, I'm going to check you. It wasn't a can I, even though she had asked me to clearly outline everything I wasn't okay with and then provide it in writing. And on there it said, I do not want any cervical checks. Um, she still came in and did, said, I'm going to check you. So I remember kind of being stunned. Like I couldn't believe she was asking or telling me after I had outright said that's not what I wanted and my husband was standing in the bathroom and I felt like I was waiting for him to say something and he didn't and I think immediately in that moment I was triggered into a victim because I had wanted him so badly to say no since he knew and I didn't say no so she checks me and she goes you're a seven um you're doing so good and I just felt broken like everything I had wanted was gone and when I, I, I felt like my baby wanted to be born in the water and we don't have a tub in our bathroom, we just have a shower. And so I, she, when you book with her, she offers a free birthing pool. And so I had asked a few times if I could pick that up and I felt like I was getting the runaround, like she didn't want me to pick it up, but I was insisting to pick it up. And so eventually I got to pick it up. And I, now looking back, know that I was in transition with my daughter. And I remember her continuing to ask if I wanted to get out, like over and over. Do you want to get out? Do you need to get out? Sometimes people feel like they need to get out to have the baby. And I, full circle, don't think I would have ever gotten out if I wasn't prompted to get out. And I know I was just in transition. And so I got out and she says, well, I think you need to go to the bed. So I'm on the bed. And I remember in that, and my husband was there. And I remember in that moment feeling so 
discouraged and duped. Like, I felt like I had invited, essentially, the devil or what I was trying to avoid into my home, my most, you know, sacred space, because it had felt like I had invited the medical system into my home. Um, Because I was on my back, and I was on my bed, and she was standing over me, and her assistant was standing over me. And that's how my daughter was going to be born. And at my core, it was wrong. And it was everything I did not want to happen. So I am giving birth and the midwife is yelling, cord, cord, the cords around her neck, we're going to have to summer. And it was huge theatrics. So she's talking to her assistant and she's like, we're going to have to somersault this baby out of here. So the cord doesn't affect her and everything I know now knows, you know, gosh, what a God complex she has in order to say and justify, you know, needing to do such a thing. And so I push my daughter out and she's um, flipped around or how she would call it somersaulted out so that her cord did not choke her or there were no complications with her cord. And um, my husband disclosed to me when that, that was very triggering for him um, that he felt like he wouldn't have known what to do or how scary that would have been for him if nobody was there for, to help with that. And I remember them handing her to, to me and of course, I you know was so excited to meet my baby, but I was like, geez, you know, internally, you just had what you wanted, this home birth. But it felt so wrong. So I, um, what really I internalized a lot of blame for was um, I was holding my daughter and I wanted delayed cord clamping. And that was something that bothered me with my previous daughter's birth in the hospital is that I said it, but it's like, was kind of a joke. Like, Oh, she wants delayed cord clamping. Let's give her a minute and then cut the cord. Did they give you like one minute versus 30 seconds in the hospital? One minute. Mm -hmm. They're like, we, we delayed it. We, we delayed it. We would have cut it by now. (laughs) And then they lost the um, cutting scissors in my bed in the hospital. And that was a big to do because they, couldn't find the scissors that they used to cut her cord. And I was in the hospital bed. I had um, tore a lot in, for my hospital birth. And so they were trying to stitch me up, but they couldn't start stitching me up. So I was bleeding everywhere because they couldn't find the scissors, which was a big to do then. And so I was holding, for my second birth, I was holding my daughter on my chest. And I remember her cord was blue when I seen it and she was very blue, which we know, you know, she's oxygenated. She's oxygenated through her cord. A blue baby is perfectly fine, but it was painted as she was blue because the cord around her neck and the midwife went to cut her cord. And I said, immediately said, no, I wanted delayed cord clamping. And she held, I was on my back and she was over me and she pulled my daughter's cord up and put it in front of my face and said 
Her cord has been attached for a long time. Can't you see it's done pulsating? It's time to be cut and cut my daughter's cord. And I just felt in that moment a part of me die. It was a blue cord. It was a blue instead cord. Of, instead and of so, white. It should be always white. Yes. And I just died inside. A part of me died because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm in my home. My daughter was born in my home. How could I not protect her in the most sacred place? And immediately she begins her fundal massage. And I just was so shocked. And then I have this anger building like I said something. I outwardly said something. And where was my husband to tell her? No, to stop. And he wasn't there. And I felt so alone. Um, And so I have since requested the birth records. And when I reviewed the chart from birth to the cord cutting was seven minutes. And I just, you know, now I'm like, I didn't know the time in the moment but I knew it wasn't long enough. And I just felt so validated in myself that no, it wasn't long enough. It truly wasn't. And my, my baby deserved better. And I invited her in and I allowed my child to have this done to her because I invited her in. So then I was just, I felt so beaten down at this time And so the fundal massage and she pulls my placenta out immediately after cutting my daughter's cord. So probably within eight or nine minutes, right? Because we knew the cord was cut after Did she give you Pitocin? So after she yanks my placenta out, I remember feeling the urgency to move. So I was on the right side of the bed and I said, I I, I need to go to the other side of the bed. Now reflecting, I think I wanted to get away to, to have my baby get away. But where could you run to in your own house? So I moved to the other side of the bed and they say, you're bleeding a lot. You, You need Pitocin. And then they injected my leg with a shot of Pitocin. And I didn't have any Pitocin for my first birth. I didn't have any that was a no. And I felt like I didn't even have the chance to respond. And I was injected with Pitocin. And then maybe they weighed her shortly after. And maybe 45 minutes later left. And I just remember being so thankful that they had left but I was after the shot of Pitocin I felt so disconnected from my baby and I never felt that way with my first birth after I had her and they were stitching me up they said you know let's let dad hold the baby while we stitch you up and it was no you're not you're not taking this baby from me And I felt so disconnected from my second daughter. I thought, gosh, there's something wrong. I was like very anxious, which I did not have before. And um, I believe it was me reacting to the Pitocin. 
And I never would have, I had called my mom and asked her to come over because I felt like I needed to go to sleep. Um, And I asked her to hold the baby because I just felt so disconnected that there was something wrong with the baby or me. And I never really rely on my mom given my past. And so it was just completely out out of context for me. And I remember being so angry at my husband and telling him that there was something wrong with the baby. And he would argue and say, the baby's fine and everything's fine. And it was pretty rough that we had so much growth in our relationship after the birth of my first daughter. And it just felt like this huge bomb after our second daughter together because I didn't feel that he was able to protect me when I needed to be protected. And so that required us to work through a lot. Um, And my daughter had a lot of feeding problems. We really struggled breastfeeding. I didn't have any of those struggles the first time around. Um, I had struggles connecting with her. It was a very, very difficult time. I want to highlight that a lot of people, you know, use blanket statements like your baby was a home birth baby and not vaccinated, right? Oh, why isn't everything great? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because the little things that were bombs in your birth experience matter. The the cord cutting, the, the... Midwife thinking a cord around the neck is life or death and then putting you into fight or flight, hijacking that hormonal system. And then your hormonal cascade was completely severed and disrupted with Pitocin, which is a hormone. You were injected with a big pharma hormone and like that just cannot be taken lightly. So when people say, oh, but there's a home birth and they're not vaccinated, there are events, details in a home birth with providers that massively affect things. And that's what your story showcases. Yeah. And I remember, so then the midwife uses her daughter for a lactation consultant. So I called her daughter and I'm like, I need an appointment. I can't breastfeed this, this baby. She's, you know, I'm breastfeeding her and she's spilling milk. She's choking when she's eating and this isn't normal. And the lactation consultants saw her the day after she was born. And then this was two or three weeks after that appointment. Wow. Your daughter's uh, mouth wasn't this tight. The first time I saw her, this has progressively gotten worse over the last few weeks And the only thing that I can justify that with is, you know, the amount of trauma that my daughter also endured and how that compiled and manifested in her body was through her oral tone and how she was brought into the world really impacted her. It was not peaceful by any means. And I didn't feel that way with my first daughter, but I truly felt like it was a, it was a battleground inside my own house. Um, and so 
she, she, she's really spunky now. And, but it took a long time. She was, she was delayed in, um, almost everything she did in reference to my other children. And, um, I truly believe it was from how she entered the world and the amount of stress that I was under and she was under to, to have her cord cut like that. And to, um, you know, for me to give up those precious moments in the beginning, uh, after she was born and give her to my mother versus me hold her. And I felt so incapable in that moment that I wasn't able to connect with her when she needed to connect with me most. And I have since worked to rebuild, I would say, after that experience. And so, of course, then we ended up getting pregnant again. And, um, oh, I should go back. So when my daughter was eight months old, I lost my vision. Oh, you left out a little detail. Yeah, yeah. How could I forget such a transformative time? We had just gotten over her feeding issues, and um, we ended up doing the tongue and lip revision um, for her to properly nurse, which it helped a lot. I can say it. It helped a lot. It was traumatic for me during it, and I know it was traumatic for her and she still has a lot of oral aversions from having her lip and tongue snipped. But in that moment we needed that in order to feed. So things were getting better in that sense. Um, and I was really taking charge of my health and, and exercising and trying to feel a lot better And I had lost my vision in my right eye. And this, again, was still during the height of COVID. And so I had this baby that multiple people said to me as providers, lactation consultants, or had said to me, you know, if you give your this baby a bottle, she struggles so much to nurse that you may never be able to nurse again, because the bottle will be so much easier for her to eat. She could refuse nursing. So I'm so petrified to give my baby a bottle and I lose vision in my right eye. So I'm not going to the hospital because who's going to feed my baby? And I'm not going to do that to her. And so I had gotten an email from somebody within the state um, accusing me of you know, not providing proper care for my kids. And I had read it and then I had put it down and went to get into the shower and I immediately got this horrible throbbing headache. And I was so triggered by this email and I hurried and I knew I had to pick up my kids from school. And so I had jumped in the car and I only wore glasses to see far away So I put my glasses on and I remember looking through my right eye and there's a smudge. And so I'm like, oh, I have a smudge on my glass, glasses. So I take it off and clean it and I put it back on and the smudge is still there. I'm like, that's really weird. 
So I kind of go about my day. So over a week, the smudge grew progressively worse to the point where I couldn't see at all through my right eye. It was like being in like a dust storm out of that eye, but you couldn't visually make anything out. And I had just had my optometry appointment to get a stronger script after I had my daughter. So maybe it had been 30 days and I really like the optometrist. And I called him and I said, hey, I'm having these problems seeing through my glasses in one eye. And he says, well, come back in. And I went back in and he ran all these tests and he came back and he goes, I checked your vision the same as I did last time. And everything reads the same. Um, and this, he was like as white as a ghost. And he says, so it's, it's neurological. The issue is neurological, why you can't see through your eye. And I said, well, I'm not going to the hospital because I'm not leaving my baby when she can't eat. And they're not letting the baby in for COVID. And he goes, well, I know how you are. If it gets worse, you, he goes, you need an MRI. And I said, well, I, I'm close to my chiropractor. He'll order me an MRI. He can do that. He goes, okay. This was over the long weekend. And so this was a Friday, and so things weren't going to be open till Tuesday, and my chiropractor was actually in Hawaii at the time. And so I sent him a, a text, and I said, you know, I know I know you're gone, so no rush. When you get back, can you order me an MRI? Of course, I'll order you an MRI as soon as I get back. So my plan is to make it till Tuesday. So I'm carrying on with his normal functions to the best I can and taking care of all these small kids. So that would be, at the time, four kids. Um, and my husband worked nights, and so he would sleep all day and get up in the evenings. And so I was trying to keep the kids quiet and play with them, and I remember sitting down on the couch and I couldn't see out of my right eye and the right side of my face began to go numb. And the optometrist had said, if you get any numbness, you need to go to the hospital. So I'm like, oh, this isn't good. This was a uh, Saturday. So I went and woke my husband up and I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. My entire right side of my face is numb and it was progressing down my, to my neck. And my husband was like, no way, because he, he, he just couldn't believe that I would need to go to the hospital. So I walk into the hospital and I'm like, you know, I need an MRI, order me an MRI and I need to be on my way because I'm not staying here. I'm not, I'm not, uh, not nursing my baby. So I knew I nursed her and I knew I had about four hours. So I'm pushing the hospital. Come on, come on. You know, I need to see neurology. And they're like, oh, this is probably just a migraine. And I'm like, no, I wouldn't be here for a migraine. We need to give you migraine meds. I'm like, no, I don't want migraine meds. I'm like, just page neurology. So finally, the neurologist comes in and she looked at my eyes and she said, I know you don't want to stay here because of your baby. So I'm going to do everything I can for you to nurse your baby and my abilities. 
but the only way we can order an MRI is if we admit you. And I have to admit you because you need an MRI. Your eye doesn't respond to any light. Um, there's something seriously wrong. So I said, how can I feed my baby? So she said, I'm putting in your chart that you have privileges for the patio and you come and go as you please and you nurse your baby. So my husband left and he was driving 35 minutes and he would drive my baby up every four hours and I would nurse her. So I was admitted to the hospital. They took me to an MRI. Um, they come in, the whole neuro team comes in, and they say, you have um, three lesions on your brain, two are active, one was from the past, one lesion is pressing on your optic nerve, that's why you can't see, and you have multiple sclerosis. We can set up counseling, you know, there's a lot of medication to make your life better these days, and kind of they begin giving me the spiel on how, you know, you can take these immune suppressants and live a normal life with multiple sclerosis. They don't know, you know, I, I start asking questions like, why? 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 How? How could this happen? We don't know. We don't know. But in order to get your vision back, you need to take these steroids. So they start me on the big, heavy steroids. And my bones started to hurt so bad. So I said, no, stop. I'm not doing these, these steroids. And so they set me up with the, the team. And, you know, I keep telling them, I got to get home. You know, my baby, I've never been away from my children, any of my children for, for a day, a night. And I had missed one night because by the time they did the diagnostics, it was that night, maybe one or two in the morning. They had told me I had multiple sclerosis. And so I'm like, I got to get home. And it felt like the same as when I, you know, almost had my had my baby C-sectioned out of me and I was like, I got to get home. <laughs> so I'm like, I just, I got to get out of here. So the same neurologist that approved, you know, for my husband to bring my baby up during COVID and I would just walk outside and go to the car and nurse her in the car says, well, let's set up the steroid treatments outpatient and then you're home with your kids. And so I knew I wasn't going to be taking these, these steroid treatments because they just felt like they made me so sick. But anything to get, I was, I was on board with anything to get out of there. So I'm like, okay. So I went home and, um, you know, they told me they didn't know if I could get my vision back. They didn't know if it would return. Sometimes if it returns, it doesn't return to the same level that it you had before it. Your optic nerve swelled. You always had a lesion on your optic nerve or a scar, some scar tissue. And so I was 
pretty depressed, I would say, for like 10 days on, oh my gosh. And I remember asking my husband, you know, are you sure you want to be married to someone who basically is so sick? And all I could think about was, how am I going to be a good mother to all these children, you know, and not function properly, not be able to see, not, you know, potentially be able to use my limbs or if it affected my spine. And it was in that moment I was, I thought, no, I'm not giving this power to anybody else. My body doesn't want to hurt me or attack. You know, you're told your brain just attacks, your immune system just attacks itself. And, and I'm like, gosh, that just doesn't make sense to me. What, what a load of crap. Like, And so in that moment, I was like, no, I'm going to get better. And this was after about 10 days. And I started being very cautious of what I chose to eat and if it was going to fuel my body or not. I did a lot of, I started, uh, I met somebody who used um, frequency frequency device for like cell harmonization and she offered me free treatments on her machine and so I started doing that and I started to feel better and I started working out again and my vision returned after about two weeks completely so I didn't have any so at the time I'm still seeing they assigned me to an outpatient neurologist. It was not the neurologist I saw when I was inpatient. And I was telling her, you know, I'm feeling better. I'm feeling better being mindful on, on how I treat myself and slowing down. And her response to me was, um, at the time I had cut out all dairy. And her response to me was, you know, if you want to eat the ice cream and it's more upsetting for you not to eat like the ice cream or the cheese, you can always take the immunosuppressants and, you know, live this, this life you want to live. And I'm like, (laughs) I remember telling my husband after I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't do this (laughs) with this woman. And they wanted, they continued to tell me like you had to take, you have to take these immunosuppressants. You can be in a wheelchair. Um, all of the horrible things that can happen to somebody with multiple sclerosis. And for me, I was going to nurse my baby and I'm not going to take these pills and nurse my baby. And so I just couldn't get on, get along with this outpatient neurologist. So I called Mayo and I said, I want the neurologist I had in the hospital. And they said, well, you can't switch. You can't have her. This is the MS neurologist. And she's the one that specializes in what you have. And I said, no, I want the other neurologist who listens to me and what's important to me, not what's important to her. And they told me no. So I wrote this letter And I sent it to the head of of Mayo on how I needed this neurologist that saw me in the hospital. And the head of of Mayo called me and said, okay, 
we're going to transfer you to the neurologist you want. And so I saw her and I told her that I was not going to take any immunosuppressants, that I was going to work on what I needed to do because I wasn't going to not nurse my baby. And she says, well, we have never seen success with that, but I'm not going to say it can't happen because I don't know what can and can't happen. But nobody's been ever to put their, their lesions into remission without immunosuppressants. And I said, okay. And that left it at that. And um, I went back six months later and I did an MRI. And it came back that all my lesions were in remission. And so um, she goes, well, I don't know what you did, but it worked. And I'm like, well, of course it worked. I know it worked because I feel great. I feel the best I've ever felt. I really consciously made choices on what I put into my body and, and what I did. And this was before I got pregnant with our third daughter. And so then they went into their spiel of, you know, you have to be mindful on, on if you choose to have any more kids, if you have kids, it's very high that you relapse, that you get more lesions. And I thought, I don't know, I just didn't feel like I was done having kids. And so I'm like, eh, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. So they go, we need to rescan you again with an MRI in six months. Because, um, you know, you're not on these immunosuppressants that you need to be on. And your lesion can come back and could affect anywhere, your spine, you might lose function. I'm like, okay, I'll do a scan again in six months. Well, I ended up getting pregnant with our third daughter. And when I got pregnant with our third daughter, at that point, I was so in tune with myself. I was so confident. I knew my body. I knew exactly what my body needed. I was so properly nourished. Um, I was really just being mindful on what made me, what fueled me and what made me feel bad and honing into that. And I was, we weren't trying actively to conceive, but I just think that her soul wanted to be here so bad that she was, she was coming. And so the stars aligned and I was pregnant with her. And I remember telling my husband, I'm going to free birth. I'm going to have her by myself. And he said, the last midwife was fine. You should just go back oh. to her. <laughs> and it was like a downhill spiral from there. I mean, I was so mad at him. And I had not process like everything that had happened I hadn't even read the birth records for my second daughter I I felt that I was in one way being selfish like you got to have this home birth and you had this baby at home and I wasn't grateful for that because of the experience was so horrible when I had her at home and so I had a lot of internal conflict and so I hadn't done any processing but so, of course, I begrudgingly go right back to my abuser. I went right back to that midwife. 
And (laughs) at the first appointment, she goes, I'm going to take labs. I'm like, okay. So she draws blood and she missed my vein. And I said to her, you just missed my vein. She's got the needle in there and she's like fishing it around. And she goes, no, I didn't. I'm like, I could feel her fishing the needle around. And eventually she hit my vein and she goes, see, look, now there's blood coming out. And I felt like I was reliving the moment when I said, don't cut my daughter's cord. And the next day I had my arm was completely bruised from her missing my vein and fishing around. And I said to my husband, see, do you see like, you know, here's, here's a visual indicator. Literal bruise, little literal bruises from my abuser. (laughs) Yes. And he's like, well, she's not going to admit that she missed your vein. Who would admit to that? And I thought, gosh, and you want this lady at the birth of this baby? <laughs> and so we were really disconnected at that time um, to each other emotionally. And so I am listening to podcasts and just listening to other women's stories of how they free birthed. And... I was kind of going through the motions. I think I saw the midwife two, three or four times. And then by 32 weeks, I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going, going back. And it came to a head when I said to him, I'm, I'm going to have this baby by myself. You're going to participate or you're not, but I'm not. I'm not using the midwife. And I think, I don't know exactly, but for him, I think he was brought back to the time period when I did not consider his feelings. And so I think that was triggering for him because he felt that I was not acknowledging him. And so it kind of was a few days where tension was high then the um, Free Birth Society podcast came out with um, Dr. Cohen. And on there, I think she said she offers um, consults. And so I don't believe I booked that appointment for me. I believe I booked it for him. And we both sat down and spoke with her. She was actually not taking it. It was, um, I think I was 38 weeks. And she was like off the next two or three weeks because she was out of town. And so I wrote her and she said she wouldn't make an appointment to meet with us because of, you know, I was almost due or I was getting towards the end. And that's when my husband, I figured out that it was the cord. Um, was his big holdup. So we circled back and he said, you know, it was really traumatizing for me when our daughter was being born about this cord. And so he, she was really good about touching on all of the things that I guess were controversial or 
hard for him to get over. And I think made him feel very understood and invalidated in his concerns versus, you know, there was so much tension between us that it, for me, it was kind of like, I'm going to do this. This is, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not, I'm not using her because I felt the need to protect our baby. So we met with her and after, I remember when she touched on the point of, you know, anytime you choose to bring a baby into this world, you have to face death. Um, even in the best of circumstances or the worst of circumstances, you, you always have to face death because anything. And I think that really resonated for him. And so by the time our appointment was done, he he's like, okay, I'm on board. And it wasn't that I needed his validation, but I felt that it would be better for us to both be in support of each other for our relationship at the time that was struggling and for our daughter, that it was important that we were both on board. Would I have birthed her without him being on board? I'd like to say yes. Free birthed her. I I think so because of, how I began to process everything that the midwife did during the pregnancy of the, my daughter. And we, um, he was fully on board. And I remember in that when we were both on the same page, it, it helped us be very connected in the sense of, We were, it felt like we were a united front like we were for the, for the birth of our first daughter together. And, um, I wanted photos. So I ended up hiring a photographer who, and I went through my whole thing on, you know, what I wanted and I wanted to her be, her to be present, but not present to me. And, um, her support of free birth and she was, she was very supportive. So I ended up having her, um, free birth and it was beautiful. When I was pushing her out, the photographer said, baby's coming. Who's catching? And I had already knew I was going to catch my daughter. And so in that moment, I was like, I just felt so robbed. Like, why? Like, you know, everything was so, so great. And I just felt like she took that moment that I would have instinctively caught my daughter anyways. I know it wasn't meant to be malicious or anything like that so if we were to ever have another baby I don't think anyone would be invited into that space just because of how sacred it is and how something so small can have such a big impact but I caught I caught my daughter and she was born with her cord wrapped around her neck twice and then twined through her legs 
And my husband, when she came out and I picked her up, yells, cord, cord, get her cord. It's on her (laughs) neck. And I said, she's fine. She's fine. (laughs) So I unwrapped her cord and um, I said hi to her. And I said, you know, which how dumb I said, I'm here. It's your mom. I'm here. And of course she knew it was her mom, but, but she, um, cried a little and, uh, she was just so peaceful. Everything was peaceful. She was born in water. I never felt the need to get out. I never felt the need to have her on the bed. I never felt the need to move into, you know, a different place. And Everything was peaceful, you know. Her cord stayed until the moment I wanted to cut the cord. It was completely white. Um, I had the placenta on my own, no fundal massage. And the day after I gave birth to her, I got a text from the midwife. We really need to get you in for an appointment. And I texted her back and I said, no need. I already have the baby. <laughs> and so she's calling me and calling me and calling me. And at that time, I was not prepared to confront her for why or share with her. Not that I think um, she's entitled to any of that, but I, I didn't want to speak with her. And so she continued to call me multiple times and I would ignore the calls. And I was just enjoying um, our baby. And now she she just turned nine months old. And she, gosh, her level of confidence is unmatched. I mean, I cannot believe how confident she is. I just have never seen that in any of the babies we fostered and any of the babies we had. But she is so confident in herself at nine months old. And um, I finally circled back. I requested the records from the midwife. I reviewed how long the cord was on. And I felt like I processed everything. And so I I confronted her and I said, you know, why why did you inject me with Pitocin? And she, in the chart, she noted that I hemorrhaged in the past. And I needed Pitocin after birth because of my past hemorrhage. And I said back to her, I never had a hemorrhage. I never had Pitocin. I never anything in my, in my first birth. She said, well, I don't know. I don't know why it says that then. Like nonchalantly. (laughs) And I said, well, I just want you to know that I had a negative reaction to that Pitocin. And it, um, it really impacted how I bonded with my daughter. And she said, why would you say that Pitocin is only in your system for 15 minutes? And I thought at that point, I was like, no, there's no reason to respond or engage because it's, it's the same dismissive behavior that it's been. It's the, your daughter's cord is done. I didn't miss your vein. And so it was kind of like full circle, like it just was never meant to be and I forced it and it 
you know, my daughter's the one that paid the price when I used her and, but what a gift and a blessing it is to get to do it again and to have it not. Yeah. I want you to verbalize the power and difference of birthing in a hospital than birthing in your house, but still being, um, coerced, um, still being told what to do. And then with your free birth, you are in control. You are following your instincts. Yeah. And, and our, my free birth was amazing. Even, um, after she was here, the baby is here. My husband's like, Oh my gosh, that was the most peaceful birth we've ever had together. Um, it was so validating to have, you know, to go from such this traumatizing experience where all of these gloves were ready to catch my second daughter and flip her a million times to, you know, save her life from this cord to just reach down and, and grab my other baby and bring her up gently and, and know she's okay to unwrap the cord myself and she's fine. And it's was so powerful for me and and repairing in the relationship. And it, I think it just brought things full circle that instinctually it's there and it's up to you on if you want to lean into it and you want to embrace it and take full authority for yourself. And I think it was full circle for me. I had already taken authority over myself for my health. And how could I ever revert back and give that power away and, and give that power away for my child? And so then of course uh, I'm, I did not do any MRIs when I was pregnant, even though they say that it's safe and they, you know, they wanted to check me after six months that you can do an MRI. I said, no, I won't do any MRIs when I'm pregnant. So when she was six months old, I went in for an MRI and they're all anticipating that I'm going to have relapse because I had a baby. And when, when MS people have babies, they relapse and they get new lesions on their brain. And I already knew that I didn't relapse and I knew I didn't have a lesion on my brain. And so I did the test and they come back that um, the findings say that I've in fact shrunk my lesions. So there is no active um, lesion and they're shrinking. And then I just feel like I really came full circle in the sense of, even getting that test is still participating in the system. And I already knew that I was healthy. And so why did I go? And so, yeah, I don't think I'll, I'll ever get another MRI. And, and I met with my neurologist and she's like, you know, we've never seen this. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it because we have no input because we don't have anybody on our caseload that doesn't is it has been successful in not having a, a lesion and, and be off of their 
immunosuppressants and I never took them and I was able to regain my vision and they scanned my eye and they can't find a scar. And the neurooptometrist couldn't believe there was no scar. And so, yeah, it's just been very full circle in, I think, you know, what something I'm so passionate about is I wish more people knew that if you didn't want to be sick, you don't have to be. Yep. And, and I just wish, and when I meet people who are sick or dealing with, you know, these immune issues, if you don't want to be there, you don't have to be there. It's up to you to, to choose to live in victimhood with an illness or to repair. And so I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm in the midst of raising my babies and really soaking in these moments, but I'm not sure if down the line something will, my passion project or something will come forward on working with people with, that actually want to live in with health and be prosperous. But I do find it every day in my everyday life, you know, I notice all these people constantly yeah. living in victimhood. And I do think it's really cool that even, even though you did do the most recent test and you, you're not sure if you want to go back, you are showing the doctors what the human body is capable of because they think they need their medications and they need their big pharma pharmaceuticals. And your testament, your testimony is that the body heals itself and they get to see that through you. Yeah. And they, they actually sent me to participate in a research study and I'm like, no, <laughs> that just doesn't align. And I don't need me. you. <laughs> but yeah, I'm like, no, I, I don't need to dive anymore into any kind of system. And really it's been liberating. Like, you know, how do I have a nine month old that's never, never been to a pediatrician or <laughs> yeah been to any of that and she's alive and she's well and you know it's just the more I have I just can't imagine ever re-entering any of any of those systems ever again and I wish more people could see the power within themselves and how all it takes is for you to take it back yeah, in those 10 days when you got your diagnosis and then you decided, like the fork in the road, the fork in the road of when you get a diagnosis, are you going to be, is that going to be your life story, your life sentence, your death? Are you going to be a victim to the diagnosis or are you going to be a new person because of it? Mm -hmm. And People get that fork in the road with the diagnosis. And the thing with diagnosis is that in our society, cancer is kind of worshipped in a really strange way that there's a lot of emotional needs met with a heavy diagnosis like cancer MS where, you know, you can mm -hmm. really get taken care of emotionally physically by community, your people, you could really feel love when you get diagnosed with something and that feels good for so many people. 
And I understand why they might go down that other fork in the road. Because that, that, that mm-hmm. attention, that love, that being cared for feels so good. But there's another path available where that diagnosis just isn't even a part of you. <laughs> yeah. Like I often feel like I'm like, I really don't even identify that I have multiple yeah. sclerosis. I truly believe yeah. that it was like compounded internalized stress living in fight or flight for the last, well, probably since childhood, but all of the compounded stress I held on to with, with my adopted children and how I was still taking in people's outside opinions on their care because it's completely stripped away from you. Any instinctual mothering in the system because you are told what to do and how it was just a boiling pot. And once I was able to let that go, my body knew what it was supposed to do. Your emotional conflicts in life. So have you, have you started dabbling in German new medicine? I have. And actually my um, daughter had a, none of my kids have ever had any tooth decay or issues, but my daughter with the feeding issues and her, one of her initial baby teeth that erupted was rotting. And so I'm like, you know, into this German new medicine and I'm reading and I'm like, wow, not being heard. Like she was not heard. She was not heard in how she wanted to be birthed. She wanted to be born in water and I got out. She wasn't heard when she wanted to be left on with her cord that was cut. She wasn't heard when um, she needed her mom to comfort her when basically everything was stripped away from her. Her life source was stripped away from her and she wasn't ready with their cord being cut. And I gave her to my mom to hold because I couldn't figure out what was going on with me. And she has this rotting tooth. And um, we got the tooth pulled. And, you know, that's a whole thing in, in itself because, you know, she's three years old. And so they want her under anesthesia. And I'm like, no way. <laughs> Put my baby under anesthesia. And um, so, you know, she's, they don't want me in the room. And I'm like, no, you're not, you're not taking my baby to pull a tooth without me in the room. And so I find a dentist who will pull the tooth with me in the room and we pull the tooth and um, it's abscessed and it's decayed. And I truly believe that, that that's related to her not being heard since the moment she was born. And she seems so at peace with the tooth gone, like the infection gone. And she's able to articulate everything she needs and wants. And, you know, we talked about the tooth getting pulled and she's like, I said, I said goodbye to my tooth and she put it in a little bag and she's good. And I truly believe that, you know, that all came full circle. Yeah. It's going to be really fun if you if you haven't um, getting in, and I don't have to include this in the episode or not, but I just want to say this is, you know, your right eye that went blind, if that's partner, child, 
what did you not want to see? What were you seeing in life that you didn't want to see? Or what did you want to see? You know, all, going back to all your insane, crazy symptoms. Because there's a parallel with um, – I have a friend that has MS and she was in a very long court battle, custody, custody child court battle with a baby daddy. And she got MS after that court battle. And she's like, it's from that. And this was a long time ago. And now looking at German New Medicine, with her specific case, it was like not being able to flee a dangerous situation. So she was stuck in court, stuck in court for years. Mm -hmm. And it manifested in her legs and she couldn't flee from court. She was stuck in this phase of her life that she did not want to be in. And the body as an adaptive mechanism you know, wouldn't let her move her legs. So the MS is in her legs and it's to play dead because you're in such a dangerous situation that the survival mechanism of the body is to act dead. Don't move. Don't move your legs. Act dead to survive. And that's crazy. <laughs> it blows my mind. Is she better now? Um, no, because I think um, it's now a constant track. So it's a constant um, emotional conflict with her line of work that she needs to move for mm. her line of work. So she's constantly hitting the emotional conflict of not being able to move well. So then for her, it's it's a whole other thing. Yeah. But, it, but it's been decades also. She's just now looking at it in a new light. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely like really full circle when you, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I couldn't believe when they told me her tooth was rotting and then I'm like, wow. Mm, and she had the, the breastfeeding issues, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Is there anything else that you want to touch on? This was incredible. You're, yes. you're a freaking warrior. Oh, I have to, I, I did not just because I'm not ready to like talk about it, but I'll have to bring it up to speed. We were in a court battle too. When I got the email for um, my son's older daughter. So I'm not sure yeah. when I'll be ready to share that part of the story, but yeah, we adopted her and she was, um, so this whole time we were living with her and she had plans to kill her brother when he was sleeping. And so um, we had placed her back with the state in hopes that they would um, put her in a home with no other kids. And so that's what wow. the email was about accusing us of not taking care of her, not caring for her appropriately. And that was during that court battle. So we ended up um, terminating our rights to her because it was deemed by, that it would never be safe for her to live with the small children. Wow. Is that the, is that the email that you got like, for MS or when your eye went blind? When I lost, when I went blind. Wow. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. I got an email saying that we weren't, we weren't caring for her. We were abusive to her and that they were going to investigate us. And so then I was like, triggered in the sense of you're coming for all my kids like the system that we got out of oh, is wow. coming back wow 
Uh, thank you so much. That was lovely. We'll see what other people say. You're like, oh, my story of trauma was lovely. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a story of resilience.